0: Greetings, everyone. This is a Sound Health Radio show with Richard, talk to me guy, and Sherry Edwards, as it work on the SoundHealthPortal.com. If you'd like to check out the Sound Health Portal, which I highly recommend, you can go to SoundHealthPortal.com. And a great way to see how it works and the kind of information you can get, you can scroll down on that page to the campaigns. I believe the last time I reviewed. They still had bio diet, neuroplasticity, PTSD or TBI, and corona conflict as campaigns that you can do a recording and you'll get back a report with a bunch of information. And how you do that is you scroll down to campaigns, you pick the campaign that you're interested in, sign up for a free membership, and then the system will walk you through recording two 30 to 40 second recordings directly from your computer. I do really suggest having something, a microphone. In this pandemic time, everybody's Zooming. There's a microphone called the Samsung Go Mic, which is not very expensive. It's under $40. And you can clip it to the top of your computer or on your desk or somewhere kind of near you. And it really improves your audio for Zooms, but it also really improves the audio of your intake or vocal recordings. You're just making voice recordings. You'll submit those recordings... With the campaign that you're interested in seeing the results of and within two to 24 hours usually really two to ten you'll get back a report with a lot of information i would suggest sitting down with a cup of tea and reviewing the report seeing what might be too much or too little oftentimes when you see the actual chart of your vocal print as it's broken down in the system you'll see things that are too high or too low which can be Either something that's in your system that you're not assimilating well, so you have an issue with it being too high, or sometimes it can be really too low. And again, it's, it's an assimilation where you're not actually getting it into your system, or you have too much because it's stockpiled because you're not assimilating. And it's really it's an amazing resource, the Sound Health portal. You can see demos of Sherry doing a live workup with an individual on air by going to soundhealthoptions.com scrolling to classes and then scroll down to portal presentations and there will be some of the more recent demonstrations sherry's done live online and you can watch the show and it really seeing the SoundHill portal in action is really amazing because sherry has really developed wonderful visual displays of pie charts and things so that when you first look at a report a report being an analysis of your voice that you can see right on the pie chart like oh there's the thing i want to look at now to see what's going on to see what might be the thing that can help adjust everything so everything begins to fall into place because it's a big system the human system it's a big system the sound health portal is a is a wonderful wonderful way to get information and take it to your practitioner if you have a practitioner that you like working with that really is open to other kinds of information that will allow you to, wow, I can't say enough good things about it, soundhealthportal.com. If you go to, to hear a replay of this show, if you go to soundhealthoptions.com, click on the radio tab and scroll down to Soundhealth Radio, you'll see today's flyer for Sandor Katz. And you'll see the information for the links. And then you'll see the replay links there, which will take you back to the show notes and all the information about Sandor as well as link backs to everything we talk about. So now at the top of that page, we have links to both Stitcher and Pocket Cast, which are both podcast players or aggregators. And if you click on Stitcher, for example, it'll pull up a list of shows the apps usually take a couple of, uh, maybe an hour to two hours to get the shows to appear. It just depends upon how everything's happening on the internet. But within an hour, you'll see at the top of that list, this show, and you'll be able to replay it and listen to it again, because I know with the material with Sandor, you're going to want to listen to it again. Our microbial allies. You can listen to it there, and or you can easily share it from either of those apps. Usually it's little dots, up toward the top of the app, or sometimes it's three lines, which is called the hamburger. And you can click on that, and there will be a share button. You can do the same thing by going on iOS. It's called Podcasts. And on Android, the default app is called Google Podcasts. And those do the same thing where you can go in there. You can subscribe to the show, Sound Health Options Radio Show. And you can find those by either searching for Sherry Edwards or Talk to Me Guy. If you subscribe, it just means that you'll get notified when there's a new show, so that you can just see, like, oh, here's the latest show. And that's a really great thing if you subscribe, that helps move us up in the rankings. And with that, Sandor L.X. Katz is a fermentation revivalist. His books, Wild Fermentation and the Art of Fermentation, along with hundreds of fermentation workshops he has taught around the world, have helped to catalyze a broad revival of the fermentation arts. A self-taught experimentalist who lives in rural Tennessee, the New York Times calls him one of the unlikely rock stars of the American food scene. Sander is the recipient of a James Beard Award and other honors. Sander Katz delivers a mesmerizing treatise on the meaning of fermentation alongside his awe-inspiring photography of this transformative process teaching us with words and images about ourselves, our culture, and being human. Throughout the truly one-of-a-kind book, Katz showcases 50 mesmerizing original images of otherworldly beings from the unseen universe, images of fermented foods and beverages that he has photographed using both a stereoscope and electron microscope, exalting microbial life from the level of germs to that of high art. Fermentation as Metaphor broadens and redefines our relationship with food and fermentation. Sandor joins us to talk about living a fermentation lifestyle. Welcome, Sandor.
1: All right. Thanks so much for having me on the show.
0: I'm excited. It's a great subject. I'm a fan of microbial life. And I, I have to say right out of the gate, Fermentation as Metaphor is just a stunningly beautiful book. Oh, sweet! Well, thank you. I'm glad to think so. I would consider it a coffee table book, which would freak people out, but they'll get over it. <laughs> because if they just look at it, they're going to go, "Wow, these are beautiful." What is that? And then you tell them, and they're like, oh, I don't know. I'm not sure." Bacteria seems scary, <laughs> uh, but it really is a great coffee. In my house, it would be a coffee table book because it well, really. In my is. house definitely is also.
1: <laughs> yeah, I,
0: I can imagine your coffee table. Wow.
1: But we're going to jump um, back. You know, and, I, go some, ahead. Some, something you just said in introducing me, I, I mean, I just want to – I want to challenge a little bit about the fermentation lifestyle. I mean, I think if it's a fermentation lifestyle, then, you know, there's 7 billion of us living it because, you know, almost every individual in almost every part of the world is eating and drinking products of fermentation every day because they are so, you know, thoroughly integrated into, you know, all of our food uh, uh, traditions and uh, uh, culinary cultures.
0: And do you think do you think that people think of bread as a fermented product?
1: Well, I mean it doesn't really matter much what people are thinking about because most people <laughs> aren't thinking about their food at all. <laughs> um, you know, for most people, food is a commodity that they're buying at the at the store and they have no connection to, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, everything that we would call food is other forms of life that have been transformed. And, um, you know, in the last couple of generations, for the first time, you know, most people have been cut off, <clears throat> cut off from direct relationships with the plants and animals that make up our food. Um, And, um, you you know, in in every part of the world, people develop these culinary traditions based on, you know, what kinds of foods were abundant in different parts of the world. And, you know, fermentation is just an inevitable and essential aspect of, you know, how people turn plants and animal products into food. It's how we make, you know, effective use of whatever food resources are available to us.
0: When I was a a chef in my early days, we talked a little bit about that backstage. One of the the first restaurants I worked in was a good-sized restaurant. And once every 10 days, we'd take 100 pounds of flour and make bread. And of all the things that I made in that restaurant, I always thought that the bread-making process, because you take just white flour and yeast cakes in those days, three pounds of yeast cakes, that's how much yeast we were using, and some warm milk and a little bit of butter, and you'd work them together in a giant mixer, and then you'd hand knead them. And I just thought it was the most amazing transformative process.
1: Uh, Yeah, I I mean, mean, it's just really amazing. Yeah. If the the Um, hours were so horrible, I would be a baker. And, and, you know, the the fact that you had a yeast cake tells me that it was either the 20th or the 21st century because that didn't exist until the 20th century. And, you know, all bread made for the first 10,000 years of bread making was made using natural leavening because there's yeast on all grains, but the yeast is never alone. It's always also with bacteria. So, you know, natural leavening has the same yeast that you can buy in the supermarket, but it's enhanced by bacteria. that also make minerals in the grains more bioavailable. They break down some of the gluten. They create more uh, uh, flavor. Um, The acids that they produce enable the bread to stay fresher for longer. You know, there's there's just a a long list of, um, you know, ways in which um, uh, the fermentation of a mixed community that includes bacteria is superior to the pure yeast fermentation that, you know, became popular during the 20th century.
0: Well, it was that thing. I grew up in the Monterey Peninsula, so about three hours south of San Francisco. And there was always the thing of San Francisco. I I guess it's still a deal, but it seemed more of a deal then, or maybe it was just more relevant to me then. There was always the thing about the sourdough bread.
1: yes so San Francisco definitely is still renowned for uh, uh its its sourdough breads, but you know the reality is that you can you know cultivate sourdough or, you know, the, the the organisms of a sourdough that are in whatever flour you have wherever you live, and as soon as you um, you know mix flour with water, these organisms that are in the flour but dormant because there 's no water. The water is what brings them back to life, and as the you know, as as the flower absorbs water, uh, the bacteria and yeast uh, uh, are awakened from their dormancy and begin digesting nutrients and creating carbon dioxide and um, you know, doing their transformative magic.
0: And as I remember, way back then, I think there were a couple of different. Places in San Francisco that were renowned for their sourdough bread and they kind of they had a competition of like ours is better than yours and I'm thinking how is that possible because you're all in the similar biome of San Francisco and the coastal fog and the influence and they really coveted each recipe like ours is the best.
1: Well, I mean, one, one of them may well have been better than the others, but that would have to do with technique. Um, um, you know, a sourdough can be worked in a lot of different ways, and it's all about timing and temperature and portions. Um, and <clears throat> sure, I mean, the, the the organisms are there. I mean, there's no reason to, you know, sort of travel long distances or spend a lot of money to get some coveted sourdough starter. Because as soon as you feed the flour you use to it and the water that you use, you Used to it, the starter is really going to become what you're feeding it. Um, they are notoriously unstable and really, you know, just sort of morph in their into their new environment and the you know sort of microbial um, uh, environment of whatever it is that they're being fed.
0: And I remember when uh, back to the restaurant with a hundred pounds of flour, uh, the boss, the owner of the restaurant, and the head chef would. I mean, there were some, some things he did with recipes. He was also a master baker. And so when he did baking, sometimes he would actually look at a recipe. But for the most part, it was just all in his mind. And even with recipes, particularly with breads, because we do different kinds of breads, there would come a moment when it wasn't about temperature. It wasn't, you know, he'd look at the bread and see if it had a particular, as it was rising, you'd work it the first time and it would rise in a big wad. You'd have cutting board, large tables just covered with bounds with a towel. And he'd pull it off and see if it had a certain sheen. But at some point, it would come down to touch. He'd touch the dough, he'd pull it, he'd something it. So I've always felt that in a certain way, bread making is is as much art as it is science, because a lot of people you see are, are very much measuring very precisely. But really, it is about how it feels and how it smells. And the smell of the restaurant, the kitchen, when we were making that much bread, I mean, when you take 100 pounds of flour, it's a lot of bread. So the smell is just overwhelmingly wonderful.
1: Mm, it sounds sounds really good, but but yes, I would agree that you know baking bread and any other form of fermentation is more art than science. Uh, obviously, an understanding of the you know underlying dynamics of what is happening in terms of biology and in terms of chemistry, you know, can be illuminating. But, you know, the people who figured out these processes, you know, our our ancestors who, you know, developed techniques for baking bread and making yogurt and making sauerkraut and, you know, all these other fermented delicacies. You know, they didn't have microbiology. They didn't have microscopes. They, you know, didn't know about the existence of bacteria. So, you know, they figured out these processes on the basis of results, on the basis of uh, observations, um, and um, you know, I think it's really important for people to recognize that you don't need to be a microbiologist, you don't need a laboratory, you don't need to be able to control uh, uh, every condition perfectly. Um, uh, you know, this is an art that you know can be can be done in different ways, and you know, depending on you know how exactly you do it your results will manifest differently.
0: And that was very true back with the baking. He was very critical of when it was at the second rise. So it would rise and then we'd knead it again and then cut it and put it into little trays to make individual loaves of onion bread. Boy, it was good. And we, you know, there was a point at which he would make us close all the doors because we had outside doors from the kitchen to the side and to the back. And we'd close the doors because he wanted the temperature to help it rise and to keep it stable. And it never fell, but it was always, again, it was, he would know the temperature, he would feel the breeze in the air and it was unconscious. I didn't see him like standing and being pensive. He was not a pensive type, but <laughs> it was just, it was very much a feeling. He was in participation with, I, I now know decades later that he was doing the dance with the microbes, what I would call the dance of being with an active living thing It's a it's a flow. It's not just at ten minutes you do this. At fourteen minutes you do that. It's very much a how does it feel? How does it smell? It's there's a relationship you develop with the microbes.
1: Am I reading too much into that? No, no, absolutely. I mean, I think that um, uh, you know it's it's a big biofeedback loop, and um, um, you know uh, weighing ingredients will only get you so far because you know, conditions are always going to be different in terms of temperature and humidity and things like that. And so at a certain point, you, you really, uh, you know, beyond measurements, you have to, you know, feel the texture of the dough as it rises, you feel the texture change. And, you know, that's when you know that it's time to um, uh, uh, knead it and, and uh, uh, loaf it and, and begin that second second rise but you know that that that's part of what's in the eyes of the beholder and in the skin of the beholder is recognizing those signs that that's the learning that's involved is you know learning to understand what you're looking for
0: and do we know when well let me back that up how do, do we think that the first person who discovered sauerkraut discovered it totally by accident? They must have. It was just like, oh, that fermented. What's that? That's weird.
1: Oh, wait, we can travel with that now. It's stable.
0: I mean, yeah, kraut is such an I,
1: example. I mean, it's just so entirely speculative because what we do definitely know is that you know almost every known fermented food and beverage is older than writing. So there's no recorded history that that that, that tells mm-hmm. us that you know the the oldest surviving documents in many different traditions make reference to ferments that were already important in those parts of the world, um um you know at, at at the time of those of those documents. But I mean you know let so if we if we if we if we think about this like humans did not discover or invent fermentation. It is a natural phenomenon. And okay, sauerkraut requires an actor because you need to shred the vegetables, you need to salt the vegetables, you need to get them submerged. But for berries to start to ferment does not require an actor. That just happens. Anyone who harvests a lot of berries knows that some small proportion of the berries are always already fermenting. Any berry that any berry is going to have yeast bacteria on the skin of it and anywhere where it gets damaged at all, even sort of pierced by the bite of an insect, um can begin to ferment the the, the, the organisms on the outside can be to access nutrients on the inside and transform them. And there's all kinds of evidence of um Primates and insects and birds and um, uh, uh, other mammals being drawn to the smell of fermenting fruit. Uh, there, there's amazing videos you can watch on YouTube of um, you know elephants gorging themselves on fermenting durian that have fallen off of a tree in Malaysia, <laughs> and watch and you can watch them get disoriented and um, you know start stumbling around. So you know I would say that you know in Fermentation is part of our long evolutionary past and our evolutionary forebears, uh, uh, you know, evolved with um, enzymes that can digest alcohol. They were drawn to the smith fermenting fruit. Now, that doesn't tell us much about the history of, of sauerkraut. I mean, I would certainly presume that, you know, most of what people around the world throughout history have learned about fermentation, they learned from, um, you know, dental phenomenon they observed. And then, you know, they realized that actually this is this is making food more delicious. This is making the food more stable. You know, how can we do this to make this happen when we want it to happen? Um, so, yeah. Yes, I mean, I would agree that, that that most fermentation techniques have developed through accidents and observation and experimentation. You know, fermentation exists without us, and um, you know, the various ferments really are are things that just happen on their own, and the you know the the big. Hum- cultural contributions that we developed tools and techniques for, you know, making them happen on our terms rather than, you know, on the terms in which they occur spontaneously in nature.
0: And who would have thought of, Kim Chi comes to mind, a favorite of mine, That. In a, in cultures, I think it's a Korean thing. I have the visual in my mind, but I can't think of what country it is. But I I think it might be Korea, where they have barrels buried in the ground, and that's where they make their kimchi, and then they ferment it in the ground, and they're using it being buried in the ground to keep a temperature stable. I don't think that's how they think about it, but in my mind, that's what they're doing is taking advantage. No, that's of-
1: exactly. I think exactly that that that's exactly how they conceptualize it. I mean, you know, Korea is a place that has long, cold winters. And- And, um, you know, like like me, um, uh, places with harsh climates and limited growing seasons, you know, people have come to really rely upon preserving vegetables from the abundance of harvest um, to sustain them through uh, a long winter where there's no fresh vegetable food. So, um, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that that's exactly how people conceptualize that that burying it and in, in certain parts of the world you know lots of houses built with unheated cellars for this purpose, but you know being a vessel in the soil does exactly the same thing because the you know the earth moderate temperatures and the earth keeps things cool in the heat of the summer and the earth keeps things relatively warm in the cold of the winter so it's it's just a great way to sort of you know keep things at a stable temperature
0: and what's not to love about kimchi?
1: <laughs> what is not to love about kimchi? And you know, really, if you want to, if you want to know about the history of sauerkraut, I mean, every reference I've ever seen suggests that the idea of fermenting vegetables originates in China. Um, and that the, the, the idea spread uh, westward towards Europe um, with the nomadic people of Central Asia, who sort of observed the idea of fermenting vegetables under a salty brine in China, and then, and then brought this idea with them and spread it westward.
0: And are there's a qualitative difference between a wild ferment, which we'll get to in a second, and a salted ferment. They're both ferment. Are they both fermentations? And what is the
1: yeah, difference? Yeah, sure. So, okay. I, I mean, they're 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 different. That are not, I mean, you can have a wild fermentation with salt. All that a wild fermentation, and, and by the way, wild fermentation is the title of my first book about fermentation that was published in 2003 and then revised in 2016. Um, but, you know, wild fermentation simply describes any kind of fermentation that is based on the organisms that are present in the thing that you are fermenting. So vegetables are almost always a wild fermentation because, you know, all plants have have uh, lactic our host to lactic acid bacteria, so you know there's no reason to add a certain thing to be a starter to um, um, uh, uh, your your sauerkraut. So all sauerkraut is wild fermentation. Um, you know uh, all traditional wines are wild fermentation. The yeast is on the grape. You crush the grape, the juice starts coming out, comes into contact with the yeast that are that are always abundant there, and it just spontaneously begins to ferment. Traditional cheeses are wild fermentations. There are all of these bacteria. in the raw milk and, um, you know, depending on the aging environment, you know, different kinds of bacteria will, 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 will flourish. Uh, not only bacteria, bacteria and fungi uh, uh, will, will, will flourish. And, you know, that's it's the microbial community that's developing in the cheese that gives each cheese its distinctive uh, uh, characteristics and flavor. All cheese is made of the same ingredients. It's made of milk um, you know, sometimes with salt, sometimes with other kinds of seasonings, but um, you know, the the incredible difference that we see in flavors and in textures, you know, has to do with the microcommunity as as it's aging. Um, so I, I mean, you know, all ferments had to begin as wild fermentations. Now, you know, today we the, the contrasting style of fermenting would be when you introduce some sort of a um, starter. Uh, And, you know, we have, um, you know, modern scientific starters like the packet of yeast in in every supermarket or, you know, you could buy a starter to make Camembert cheese or um, you could even buy a sauerkraut starter these days. But these pure culture starters, isolated microorganisms. You know, this is the humanological development. Uh, Until Louis Pasteur was doing his research in the 19th century, nobody had ever isolated uh, uh, individual microorganisms. And so he first did that, the whole industry of propagating. sort of specific lines of pure, uh, um, uh, isolated uh, um, microorganisms uh, for fermentation purposes. So these pure culture starters are a very uh, uh, relatively new phenomenon. Um, You know, an ancient way of uh, introducing a starter is you save a little bit of the previous batch to add into the next batch. That's how sourdoughs are perpetuated. Like the sourdough starts as a wild fermentation based organism. That are on the wheat or rye or whatever kind of grain, but then once you cultivate it and and get a vigorous starter, then you want to maintain it. So you keep on add, feeding more flour and water to it. So you're so you're propping it. We we call that topping. You always you save a little bit of the old batch to add into the new batch. That's how yogurt is perpetuated. You know, historically, that's that's one of the ways that salamis were made. The beers were started. Is bouts. From a from a previous batch, then the third kind of a starter, other than pure culture, um, uh, you know, laboratory derived starter and backslopping slopping from the previous batch, would be the starters that actually evolved, in, evolved into distinctive physical forms. So these are called scobies, symbiotic mm. communities of bacteria and yeast. And right now the most famous example of that would be the mother of kombucha, a, fl- a rubbery, pink looking thing that, that floats on top of your sweet tea, and the organisms that are part of it um, infuse into the tea and access nutrients and um, um, uh, ferment it. Isn't there also a scoby in some vinegars? I remember seeing a slimy creature
0: appearing in one of the vinegars that I left out too long. Is that a scoby as well?
1: Sure, yeah, yeah, That, that that's called the mother vinegar. I mean, really, it's more of a byproduct. Of, of, of vinegar making, but it's very closely related to uh, a, a kombucha SCOBY. Okay. I, I want to back up for a moment
0: because we dove in right away, as I knew we might. You, <laughs> I, I've heard you talk about being predisposed to loving the flavor of lactic acid fermentations and pickles. Would you talk about that for a moment? Because I think that's such a great launch for like, yeah, Oh, I, I
1: know this flavor. I like this flavor. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, like, like most people growing up in most in most parts of the world, you know, we enjoyed certain products of fermentation. And, uh, you know, my, when I was a kid, my parents liked to drink uh, wine and beer. Uh, my parents eat cheese we always had yogurt in the refrigerator but my fifth thing is pickles and we always had pickles and you know they they weren't the vinegary pickles that um uh you know fill supermarket shelves today they were the you know old world eastern european style pickles my, my mother's parents were were immigrants from what's now belarus and um you know we, we nobody was making them but um we would go to this delicatessen near our house, and we would always buy these beautiful—we call them sour pickles—that uh, uh, were sold out of a barrel. And um, you know, I loved this flavor. I didn't know that they were produced by fermentation. What I now understand is that you know these are vinegars with, with these are um, pickles with no vinegar. Um, the acidity is lactic acid that you know from bacteria on cucumbers fermenting in the salt. In Environment of the of the brine, making the cucumbers sour, and they're also seasoned with uh, garlic and dill, sometimes chili mm. peppers. And um, I you know I, I love 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 this flavor. And so yes, I mean I you know, when I started getting interested in fermentation, I, I already loved you know the dominant flavor of fermentation, the flavor of of lactic acid.
0: My gateway was, when when I was reading about that story, my gateway was, I remember as being a young person, under 10, and my parents, we would get in the car and we'd drive like 40 minutes away, which in those days seemed like a far distance. And we'd drive to a small town called Watsonville about once a month and pick up a 10-pound log of this cheese, which they called Monterey Jack, which I realize now was really more of a Delamay because it was more of a soft, creamier, because if you left it on the room room temperature, it would begin to crawl across the counter. And it was just this (laughs) wonderful combination of amazing local-made cheese that had – I don't know the history and unfortunately can't find it now, but I bet it was a natural ferment because that was in the 60s. Probably a wild ferment cheese that had been carried down from family to family, and my parents felt it had enough value. My parents were not culinarians; they were just folks who liked to, you know, eat food. Uh, and it was just this amazing. I can still remember the taste and the texture and the like slight nose of it. That it was sort of dusty on the outside, which could be a little spooky to people, but it was this. I recall that like you recall the pickles. It's that same thing of it was a taste, it was an amazing flavor and texture and it really got me hooked into the world of wow, that tastes amazing. What's that? And I didn't I didn't know that then, but now 30 50 years later, I'm really like, wow, I want a block of that now. So mm. it is a very tactile I've also heard you talking about you realize that when you were eating the lactic acid pickles, you could actually feel your taste buds squirting out, you know, action like, wow, we want that, too. And I feel the same <laughs> way As I talk about the cheese. I feel my taste buds going like, yeah, man, now would be good because. Yeah.
1: But but I mean, I think the thing that you said about your parents not being culinarians, I mean, this is key. You don't have to be someone who is thinking food all the time to, you know, recognize superiority of like locally made fresh products um um and um and and uh yeah i I feel like i were i want to really sort of get us away from this idea you know it's only the you know the people who are you know chefs really focused on you know sort of new trends in cooking or you know extremely health conscious people who are thinking about probiotics don't have to be thinking that much about food to enjoy fermentation, because almost everyone, almost everywhere does. But once you focus on it, and it's really, I, I mean, it's such a rich um, uh, you know, aspect of human culture everywhere. And, uh, you know, when, once you focus in on that, you realize, you know, how, how, how much there is to, you know, to learn about, to taste, to, to try if you're inclined. And you know, that's been the focus of my work is, you know, trying to encourage people to experiment with fermentation in their own kitchens because there's nothing to be afraid of. You know, the entire 20th century was almost like a public service announcement telling people to, um, uh, you know, be terrified of bacteria. And as a result, you know, a lot of people approached idea of shredding a vegetable, salting it, packing it into a vessel, and, and cultivating bacteria on it in the kitchen for a couple of weeks, like it was Russian roulette. Um, <laughs> but in fact, fermentation is a strategy for safety. In, in the realm of fermented vegetables, it's among the safest foods that we know. The fermentation makes the food safer. Fermented vegetables statistically sper- Much, 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 much safer than raw vegetables because there's no recorded history ever of illness or uh, food poisoning fermented vegetables. And every year we hear about outbreaks related to raw vegetables. I mean, clearly there's the possibility that, you know, vegetables can be exposed to potentially pathogenic bacteria. Generally, it's manure from a factory farm washing down over a field of vegetables, but it could just, well, be handling by people who are failing to wash their hands at critical moments. Um, But the fact is that even if to Vegetables that had been exposed to some pathogenic bacteria, once you shred them and salt them and get them juicy and pack them into a vessel, the indigenous bacteria dominated by lactic bacteria are always going to dominate over incidental bacteria that have been exposed to. And as they acidify the environment, they will destroy any pathogens. And this is something that's just... Extremely convenient for us in terms of food food um, uh, preservation is that uh, you know in an acidic environment none of the organisms that we worry about in terms of food poisoning and food safety uh, um, can survive. So as as the lactic acid bacteria acidify the environment, even if there were pathogenic bacteria present, they would perish. So this food is you know. Extremely extremely self protecting
0: So the community of lactic acid microbes are really trying to help us out, so to speak, roughly speaking.
1: Yeah. I mean, I try to stay away from, you know, um, um, language like that because, I mean, I don't think that there's necessarily intentionality involved, but they're trying to help themselves out. And as they, you know, as they sat there, their greedy appetite and consume carbohydrates, the byproduct that they preserve that the juice is mostly lactic acid. And it so happens that, you know, these organisms that we regard pathogenic can't survive in an acidic environment. And, you know, this, our body works in Intelligence And, um, you know, certain, bo- certain parts of human bodies have populations of lactic acid bacteria specifically to make certain parts of the body acidic to protect them from uh, uh, potential pathogens. So, you know, this is, you know, this is intelligence that, that sort of exists and our, our bodies are moving of it Um, but you know I'm not sure that the bacteria is conceptualizing it is trying to help out the host it's just doing what it does
0: right (laughs) right (laughs) it it feels to me a lot like uh, Paul Stamets work with fungus that oftentimes I hear people talk in in that community of they're here to help us out and really they're just doing what they do and we get the benefit of what they do and that's very much like this.
1: I mean, I think that in the natural world there are so many examples of um uh, yes you know, life forms are associating for, you know, for mutual benefit. But, you know, I, I mean, the net result is mutual benefit, but, you know, is the organism doing what it's doing for the the other organism or are they really doing it for their own benefit? And then that's a byproduct that they're not really thinking about that it benefits the other organism. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I think right. that it's important for You know, for 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 science to not organize itself around motivations of organisms, Uh, because as we know, you know, motivation is very um, um, you know difficult to pin down. Boy, howdy! Um, A question from that's that's such a that's a whole
0: show right there. We'll talk about that on another show. Um, I have a question from chat. Do you have thoughts about anaerobic lacto fermentation with? Pickle It Jars is popularized by Kathleen Mills.
1: Um, Sure. I I mean, I'll just say like lactic fermentation is anaerobic. I mean, it doesn't need it doesn't need oxygen. Um, uh, You know, almost all fermentation is anaerobic. If you ask a biologist to define fermentation, what they're going to say is fermentation is the production of energy without oxygen, anaerobic metabolism. Now, it it happens that there are a handful of microbially transformed foods and beverages that we end up describing as fermented and including vinegar, including tempeh, including molded cheeses. Um, but, you know, uh, um, the vast majority of fermentation processes are anaerobic. You know, turning milk into yogurt is an anaerobic process. Turning grape juice into wine is an anaerobic process. Turning cabbage into sauerkraut or cucumbers into pickles are anaerobic processes. Um, um, sure, I mean, I I, I don't have a specific opinion on that particular tool, but there are lots and lots of tools that people are, are, are making. I mean, there are traditionally designed vessels that, um, you know, like the, 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 the Chinese fermentation vessels have what I would describe as a moat around the, the mouth of the vessel that you fill with water. And then there's a lid that fi- fits inside of that moat. Um, uh, and what that does, it enables higher pressure that builds up inside to escape by sort of burping out through the mm. water, but it prevents the lower pressure air on the outside from getting in. And, uh, you know, as in greater interest in home fermentation, um, you know, more very cleverly engineered fermentation systems are are being developed. And, you know, I mean, most of them really are are, are very good and, and, and work fine. Um, personally, I, I really don't use them. I just use wide mouth canning jars or, um, uh, or ceramic crocks and, um, you know, uh, by, but, but, not actively exclude, well, okay. The reason why I generally use them is that I am, you know, I'm kind of compulsively interested in looking, smelling, and tasting my ferments as they develop. If you have a very clearly engineered system that excludes air, well, you open it. Every time you open it, you'd be beating the purpose of your clever vessel. So, you know, <laughs> I have accepted the trade-off that, like, for me to be able to look and smell and taste as often as I want, I'm just going to leave it so that there's a smell. Amount of access from uh, of, uh, um, of of access uh, um, to the air, so that there's a flow of air, there's some oxygen, and then like the reason why people like to protect the surface from oxygen is there are. Aerobic life forms. There's a yeast called calm yeast. Sometimes you get hairy white molds that can develop on the surface. I I accept this. I just skim them off as, you know, as I have just seen, you know, hundreds of people who've been doing this all of their life do. Um, It's just, it's not a big deal. Um, you know the surface has some 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 aerobic organisms. You skim off that surface, get rid of it, and then everything that is submerged beneath it is protected from the oxygen and uh, and 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 is fine. So nothing's wrong with those vessels. I think that they work really well. The limitation that 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 leads me to not use them is that you just have to pick an arbitrary date in the future to open it up if you really want to keep the oxygen out, because every time you open it up, you're going to be letting the oxygen in so that, that, you know, that's the only drawback of 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 these kinds of systems uh, uh, for me.
0: And would you speak to the difference between the can of sauerkraut on the shelf versus fermented foods that are in the refrigerator sec- section?
1: That's a, gr- that's a great question. So, um, y- you know, the, the, the sauerkraut in a can actually was produced exactly the same way as you would make sauerkraut in, in your kitchen um, or the, you know, higher quality sauerkraut in the jar. The difference is that to be, to, to be in that can, it has to be heat processed. So, um, uh, you know, in that application of high heat, you're killing all the bacteria that are in it. And the sauerkraut actually is still delicious. Um, But, um, you know, I would argue that one of the greatest potential benefits of sauerkraut is the live bacteria, the the, the probiotics, which have so much potential to uh, contribute towards greater biodiversity in the gut, which can have the effect of improving digestion, improving overall immunity. Function And there's even some exciting new evidence uh, suggesting that it can improve mental health. Um, so, I, I mean, I like the benefits of the, of the probiotics. So I mostly use um, uh, raw sauerkraut. I mostly make my own sauerkraut or, you know, people sometimes give me sauerkraut that they've made. Now, I'm not saying never to cook it because, I mean, there's so many wonderful ways to cook sauerkraut and kimchi. Uh, I love to make like a Hungarian style sauerkraut soup. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, I love to make kimchi soup. I love to make sauerkraut uh, pierogies. You know, it's great to cook with a little bit of it, but always save some of it to eat raw because, you know, eating these probiotics can just be so um, uh, uh, powerful.
0: I have a, I'm fortunate enough that I have some people locally that are possessed by, and I mean that in the best of ways, uh, making udon and they make an udon, which is a fat noodle. And they make a really wonderfully rich brothy noodle with the perfectly poached eggs and some other vegetables in there and some perfectly cooked mushrooms. And they put a large wad of house-made kimchi on the top, which is just like, oh my God, I want that now. Once again, I'm drooling like a dog. Uh, it's such a <laughs> wonderful uh, palate teaser and stimulator and benefits the digestive system. And just everything about it is, you know, makes me happy. <laughs> so, yeah. But we really want the raw, unpasteurized, filled with happy pathogens or pathogens of all sorts getting into our well, uh, well, no, I'm, it. Well, no,
1: they're not filled with happy pathogens. They're, they're filled with bacteria. And, you know, only like the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest fraction of bacteria have the potential to make us sick. Like, you know, we have to, you know, I, I think that we've all been brainwashed by the war on bacteria into this idea that bacteria mostly are menaces. But the reality is that, you know, bacteria are the matrix for all life you know, there's a broad consensus uh, that's formed in the field of evolutionary biology that all life is descended from bacteria. The corollary to this is that no form of life has ever lived without bacteria. So all of, you know, all of the multicellular forms of life that bacteria have spawned need bacteria in order to function. So, um, you know, each of us is host to trillions of bacteria. And without them, we couldn't effectively digest food or assimilate nutrients. They actually synthesize essential nutrients for us within us. Um, What we call our immune system is largely the work of these bacteria, and we're learning that they regulate almost every process of our bodies, including our brain chemistry. So, um, you know, we can't really afford to think of bacteria in general as pathogens because we are so reliant on them. And, um, you know, and we need greater biodiversity, not less biodiversity. Um, You know, if you if you compare the um, uh, microbiome of, um, you know, urban people to the microbiome of, you know, people still living as hunter gatherers, you'll find that, you know, those of us who have become urbanized, you know, have experienced, you know, greatly diminished biodiversity in the gut. Um, And, you know, we need all of the biodiversity that we can get. And this includes not only eating, um, uh, you know, probiotic foods, but also eating fibers, eating the kinds of nutrients that, you know, can really uh, uh, feed the bacteria along the entire length of our digestive systems. Um, You know, because people are eating so much, um, uh, you know, meat and processed foods, um, you know, basically we are failing to feed the bacteria along uh, 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 of of the large intestine.
0: And I want to jump Slightly to talk about NATO, but I want to open this conversation by talking about a study. There was a study of 2,116 men, I don't know why that number, found <laughs> that those with high LDL, or as people would call bad cholesterol, but low fibrinogen levels had one sixth the risk of heart attack than men with low LDL and high fibrinogen. The bonus points for me in there is natto kinase reduces fibrogenin. So that and this is an actual study. I'm trying to find out the original resource, but this is a controlled study. And would you talk about natto and the whys and
1: hows of making natto? And did you love natto the first time you ate it? Uh, no, I did not like natto the first time I ate it. No, I, I, was, I was very put off by natto the first time I tasted it. But, right. you know, I mean, I think that what, what you have to recognize is that, um, you know, our tastes are formed by exposure and um uh, you know i mean we we are incredibly versatile you know humans can really sustain ourselves well on you know a vast range of different kinds of uh uh foods and um um you know but you know, many of our tastes are acquired. And I would say, specifically with fermented foods, you know, we could say that in general, the flavors of fermented foods, which can be compelling and really produce almost everything you would ever find in a gourmet store. But you know, the flavors of fermentation are largely acquired tastes that we're not born loving. We learn to love them through exposure. So, you know, if you grow up in a family that's eating lots of cheese, you know, you know, as a kid you might be put off by some of the smellier cheese. You watch your you watch your, your parents and other family members taking such great pleasure in them that you you know, you have a reason to give it another try. And too, I don't know anyone who ever liked the first sip of beer. Or wine. Um, uh, uh, so, um, so a lot of these flavors are, are acquired taste, and, and yes, I mean, I was not born loving natto. The first time I tasted it, I was in my 30s and I was, I was put off by it. And, uh, you know, it was really only because other people encouraged me because I watched other people taking such great pleasure in it that I gave it another, another try and another. And now I love natto. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'm 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 passionate about natto. It has a flavor and a texture that I'm crazy about. Um, you know, I make it all the time, um, and I also make condiments that are that are natto based. So, um, you know, natto in the in the Japanese tradition is a, is a wet food. The beans are sticky, and and the fuel to the spring sort of forms between them, and it's in this biofilm that you find the the natto kinase. Like this is part of what's so great about natto but um you know many people are put off by by this texture but it turns out that natto like foods are enjoyed in a lot of places including west africa including places in southeast asia um, but often they are dried so like the west african natto like condiments the beans are fermented and then they're dried and sometimes mm. powdered and and they're used in cooking as a seasoning and um so i sometimes do that with natto i actually just um yesterday i I dehydrated a batch of natto that had been in my fridge for months and was getting really really strong and um i dehydrated it and now i'm gonna toast some sesame seeds and grind up the natto with sesame seeds and uh some some chilies and some caraway and make like a make a make a seasoning out of it, which which, which, which I love. But but natto you know nat- natto is wonderful and it has all of these unique benefits um, you know including the natto kinase which you know is a blood thinner and helps to dissolve fibrin that can build up in blood vessels um, and it's also got these extraordinarily high levels of vitamin K two it's the known food with the highest levels of of, of vitamin K two so um, yeah I mean natto is an amazing uh, uh, food both for its flavor and texture and culinary qualities, um, but also for these uh, uh, health benefits. And it's possible in the U.S. to to buy natto, but it's also very easy to make natto. uh, The starter from natto, natto moto, which is bacillus subtilis, is uh, easily available, but The secret is that you don't really need a starter because all beans have um, uh, Bacillus subtilis on them, and if you just cook them in boiling water without, without without a pressure cooker, it turns out that Bacillus subtilis actually can survive boiling temperatures, so it'll still be alive after you've cooked the beans um Hmm. uh, so then what you would need to do is cook the beans really well so they're nice and soft what i use is a like a a glass pyrex pan i put the beans in about an an inch deep you don't want to get too deep um uh, and then i put a little saran wrap on top and make some little holes so that it breathes a little bit and then i leave it in a warm environment you want it to be a little bit warmer than body temperature would be ideal about 104 degrees fahrenheit and i use an oven with a pilot light on and the door um uh left a little bit ajar. Um and uh I can get that that perfect temperature and then I leave it for about 24 hours, stir it around a couple of times during that period and uh I have beautiful sticky natto.
0: I fortunately the original chef I worked with and trained under or survived under, I would say. He was German, and he was married to a Japanese woman. And so she would bring, every Friday, she would bring in sushi from a local, actually, grocery store, where they would make it. And she would bring in futamaki, and she would also bring in a natomake, which is the natto smeared inside the wonderful rice in a uh, seaweed wrap. And the first time I ate it, she she stood there and watched me, because i had never had sushi until this time, and this was in my early 20s. And she would watch my face sometimes when I'd eat things like, what is that I'm even eating? It's amazing. <laughs> and then I would get to natto. The futomaki was one thing. Futomaki is filled with oftentimes fermented vegetables. And it's a really wonderful, big, fat, juicy, delicious roll. And then she would have me eat the natto make. And I'd look at her like, Yoshi, what is that? <laughs> but I was hooked. You know, I was hooked. And fortunately, because it was in the in the role, you don't get the sort of some people are creeped out by the sliminess of natto. But later on, anytime I would go into a sushi restaurant, I'm always the guy that's ordering natto on rice because I just love with a little bit of wasabi and a little bit of soy. It's wonderful. It's an amazing, delicious food, but it's definitely an acquired. It's, I rarely meet anybody that's like, that looks great. <laughs> it always looks just a little weird, but I, I'm a big fan of natto, and I was very excited to see this study talking about helping people with their fibrogen levels, um, so I'm, and so I didn't know it was that easy to make, the boiling and just basically fermenting in a pilot light. That's yeah, that's you know, amazing. it's, really,
1: it's, it's, it's and, and it doesn't have to be kept that, that I mean, that's how you make it fast in a 24 hour period. But, right. um, you know, like in the in the West African traditions, usually they're not creating some special incubator, they're just doing it at a warm ambient temperature. And so, you know, let's say if it was, you know, 80 degrees Fahrenheit, instead of 104 degrees Fahrenheit, it might take 48 hours instead of 24 hours, you know, it's just it's a, it's, a, it's just a longer process.
0: And for those of us that – I don't think we've said anywhere in here that natto is soy. It's soybean.
1: Um, Well, natto is typically soybeans, but you certainly can make natto with other kinds of beans that don't necessarily mm. develop as – luxuriant of a, of a biofilm because most other beans aren't as high in, in, uh, protein or fats as, as soybeans, but people make natto with lots of kinds of beans. And, you know, certainly in the, in the West African traditions, um, uh, the condiments that they're making are not, um, typically out of soybeans, they're out of African locust beans and, you know, other, other, you know, indigenous legumes.
0: Awesome. And I'd like to order a half pound of that powder that you're going to make later out of the ground, uh, dehydrated. Uh, <laughs> I'd love to be sprinkling that out of my food. Oh, my God, that would be wonderful. I'm a big fan of it. I have dozens of little jars of things that I sprinkle on food, depending upon the flavor I want. So I'm a Not big well, fan. I mean, another
1: of, wonderful thing that I sprinkle on food is um um dehydrated brines. Wow. So when I do big batches of, um, you know, pickles or kraut, I end up with excess brine. And, um, you know, I, I, I've sometimes, um, you know, dehydrated it for long periods of time until it crystallizes. And I've like, kind of crystal salts that are salts Mm. enhanced by the flavors of the vegetables and the other fermentation byproducts. And sometimes I've just sort of get down into a concentrate and I call that eau de kraut. And, um, you know, it's (laughs) a wonderful, like salty, sour, funky, um, um, you know, uh, liquid that I, that I, you know, put on stir fries or add to salad dressings or things like that.
0: And I'll take a half pound of that. Uh, <laughs> Just You don't often hear people go, oh, wow, it's fermented, salty, stinky. Yeah. Yeah, man. That's what I'm looking for is a condiment. Sounds wonderful. <laughs> you make me want to move to Tennessee and be a neighbor uh, because I love everything that you've said about all of those kinds of flavors. Once you, once people get past the thinking about it and if you can slip it into somebody and that's why I think like the natto make is a great way to get people to try a natto or try something like that. You kind of hide it in with the rice and the seaweed and they're by the time they've gotten to their like, what is that? They're kind of hooked. Because it is a I think it hits us on some sort of level where as you say your your glands begin to salivate and your body gets excited and it'll override the mind. In the best of ways. <laughs> Um, I'm amazed to find that we're at the point at which I need to ask you, where can people find out about more about your work and where would you like them to get fermentation as metaphor? And, and I'll also pitch because I think it's a stunning tome of research and recipes, the art of fermentation. Really, if you're into fermentation, this is a book you want to have. So where can well, find well, all Well, thank,
1: thank, thank, you for saying that. Um, so I have a website which is wildfermentation.com, and I, I you know, I post, uh, you know, all of the workshops I'm doing these days. Mostly they're 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 online, but you know, other times it's been, you know, in person workshops, uh, different places. I've I've traveled all around the world teaching about fermentation. Um, my website also has information about um, um, all of my books, as well as um, you know, links to all kinds of fermentation-related resources. That exist on the World Wide Web that I've been able to learn about. Um, so I invite people to check out my website. We've barely talked about my new book, Fermentation as Metaphor, but, um, but it's hard because there's, there's so much to say about, about fermentation as, as a literal phenomenon. But, you know, in our language, um, um, you know, we use the word fermentation in metaphorical ways really to describe any phenomenon that is bubbly and excited. And, uh, you know, we all need more bubbly excitement in our lives. And, um, you know, our, our society is desperate for greater uh, uh, fermentation.
0: Team fermentation i 'd wear that hat when you produce it i 'll wear that hat happily <laughs> team fermentation teams all things ferment bubbly excitement on one ha- one side of the hat and team fermentation on the other side of the hat that'd be a great <laughs> um, we'll do a we can do a whole other show talking about the art of fermentation it's well that but I really meant metaphor of fermentation because it is a really beautiful book I, I do think of it as a coffee table book with amazing thoughts around it because the pictures are just so beautiful just really it's an extraordinary piece of work piece of art really all right well thank you so much sander that was awesome as i knew it would be and for everybody else have a great rest of the weekend and we'll see you next week bye bye